Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Over the course of the last several years, numerous major hurricanes have struck the United States, including Hurricane Ian this past September. And with our increasing knowledge on climate change and its effects on our planet, more and more attempts at connections between the two are being made. But it's not quite that simple. Joining us today is Kieran Batia, Vice President of Guy Carpenter, a reinsurance company providing global risk and reinsurance solutions. And he's here to discuss the nuances and difficulties that go into making these connections. Welcome to Weather Geeks, Kieran. Kieran. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, it's, I've been following your work for some time now. And as you know, I reached out to you in Twitter and said, we've got to have you on Weather Geeks. And so I'm glad you were able to come. And it's a timely discussion. I will reflect before I really jump into the first question that I often ask. Uh, first, I want to send our, our, our thoughts and, and prayers out to those that in, affected by Hurricane Ian in Florida. It was a a high impact event, one that many of us unfortunately knew would be a high impact event. And in that moment, many people were talking about, asking about the connections to climate change. And so that's that's really why I wanted to have you on because there's a lot of good information out there on that uh, linkage, but there's also some misinformation and nuances. So that's, that's really the context for listeners of, of why we're gonna be talking about this today. But before we do that, uh, I ask every Weather Geeks guest this question right out of the gate. How'd you become a Weather Geek? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, just outside of D.C. And as far as, you know, a crazy weather story, I don't really have that from, you know, a hurricane angle. We did have winter storms and blizzards, and that was always a lot of fun. But actually, it comes from a great teacher. When I was in sixth grade, I was in the back of the classroom. and the teacher was doing kind of general science for, for sixth graders, but he himself was a big weather geek and he had a radar on in the back of the class. His name was John Fuller. And I would just stare off sometimes at the back of class looking at these greens and yellows and reds going across the screen and pinks and blues when it was winter and just kind of try to understand what was going on. And more and more after class, I would ask him, you know, what what is this radar and what's what do these these colors represent? And that curiosity really grew into, you know, a forecasting role unofficially in my high school. You know, people would come to me and say, okay, are are these uh, uh, after school events going to be canceled and whatnot? And then eventually, with time, you know, that grew more into kind of the math and science. You know, what what controls those reds and yellows and greens and oranges that you see with a radar and and yeah, it just naturally blossomed from there. Yeah, that, that's an interesting story, not too far off from my own. I, I, I was a weather geek as well around sixth grade. In fact, my sixth grade science project was can a sixth grader predict the weather? And so that, that's really what got me into the field as well. 
I want to give the listeners a bit of your background. You're the vice president of at Guy Carpenter, which, uh, which is a climate change perils advisory. Uh, you're going to help, have to help me sort of detangle that a bit. Uh, a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University. You have your PhD from the University of Miami and a bachelor's of science and physics from the University of Maryland College Park. And that's actually a very common background for many people within our field to have a physics degree. But Guy Carpenter, and then my notes say dash climate change perils advisory. <laughs> Not exactly sure of the connections there, so I'll let you detangle it for me. Yeah, so at Guy Carpenter, we're actually a reinsurance broker. So we're we're uh, our motivation is is finding the best reinsurance rates for um, uh, for companies. And with that, you can know, I can I stop you yeah. right there? I want you to continue, but before you move forward, because I often hear reinsurance all of the time, and yeah. I'm pretty versed in this. But could you explain to our listeners the difference between a reinsurer and an insurer in terms of insurance? Because I I I actually had to get that explained to me over the course of my career, and perhaps our listeners are wondering. Sure, yeah. So I think insurance is more straightforward, right? We we think of it with you know our cars and our houses, and it's basically we're giving a little bit of money each month or each week to protect ourselves against a big event happening that potentially is a, a big loss driver. Now, insurance companies, they go to reinsurance companies for a similar reason. They want protection against a, and you can think of it as another layer of protection against, um, in, in my case, extreme events. And so they're trying to go and find um, for a particular uh, type of event, when a particular magnitude of event, some extra protection so that they can have in the same way that insurance provides kind of consistency of operations and, and revenue and returns, they can have a similar installation of stability there. I, I see. So now yeah, continue on what you were saying about what you are up to at Guy Carpenter. Yeah. So at, at Guy Carpenter, I'm part of a team called the North American Peril Advisories Team. And we have a great collection of scientists who are PhDs and masters in their, in their topic. They're focusing on individual perils like tornadoes, hail, uh, sea level rise, flooding from precipitation and, and sea level, you know, storm surge related flooding, and a variety of perils. And my role, and I came in about a year ago, is to help bring in the best climate change science and, and model output to bring in that prediction for the future or forecasted possibilities for the future. And the reason that's important for a reinsurance brokerage is we're trying to help understand kind of when rates are created for reinsurance, which ones are fit for purpose, you know, priced effectively, which areas and locations and rates are potentially either undervalued or overvalued, and using the physical risk aspects of, of climate change and the perils to really give some insight to our clients on these topics. Yeah, it's a it's a, an important area. I first learned about your industry several years ago as president of AMS. We had Frank Nutter on our executive board, and he's very much involved in the reinsurance industry. So that was my uh, sort of first initiation into what what you're up to. And what I also know is reinsurers are thinking very carefully about climate change. That's one message that I just heard from you, and it's a message that I've been quite familiar with. I want to dive right into hurricanes. Let's, let's just cut right to it, because that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast. 
we saw Hurricane Ian and you know the first natural questions that were coming. I was getting them from the media in the midst of the storm. In fact, I wouldn't actually answer the question in real time about climate change because I was actually more concerned about what was happening in that moment. I knew we were dealing with a catastrophic event. And so I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk about the climate change connections at some point. But right now, let's focus on the fact that there are people that don't understand what the cone of uncertainty means for them and maybe not getting out of harm's way and so forth. So that's where my focus was. But now having said that, uh, one of the questions that kept coming up is, is, is the in a manifestation of climate change? And I want to detangle that even more, but what would be your initial response to that type of question? Yeah, it's, it's a familiar story in the sense that we, in the climate change attribution and detection space, we don't like to talk about individual events as climate change artifacts or manifestations until that detailed analysis is done. We like to talk about, on average, these types of events will happen more frequently. Because if you take a step back and look at Hurricane Ian, genesis or formation in the Caribbean Sea in the end of sep uh, in September, both very common events, right? The, these are we're talking about the peak of the season, just about. We're talking about areas that have been always affected by by storms that are intense. So, on the surface, you know that that's not enough to say okay climate change is uh, is a player here once we go down into detail we start to talk about individual sub perils things like flooding things like storm surge uh potentially rapid intensification and and the intensity of the storm we're and we talk about on average those events becoming more probable due to climate change i think that's when we have a much more robust narrative to talk about and I know one of the things that we saw with uh, Ian, we saw it with Michael and, and several other storms in recent generations, recent years, I should say, not generations, is this idea of rapid intensification. So for the listeners, explain what rapid intensification is. And I know you've published some scholarly work recently on this because it seems, and again, I'm a scientist, so I don't make conclusions based on it seems like, but it seems like there is an uptick in rapid intensification events, at least in Atlantic uh, hurricanes, but that may be anecdotal. What have you found about rapid intensification and climate change? And, and for our listeners, define it for them. Sure, yeah. So rapid intensification traditionally is defined as the 95th percentile of all 24-hour intensity changes. And that roughly corresponds to an increase of 35 miles an hour in 24 hours. Now, if it occurs in less than 24 hours, we still call it rapid intensification. Now, that definition is dependent on the basin, because if you look at the West Pacific, for example, the, it's closer to 40 or 45 miles an hour is the cutoff for rapid intensification uh, when we talk about the 95th percentile. But in general, that's what we're really talking about is this very quick intensification and with Ian, actually, there are two landfalls that were preceded by rapid intensification. So it's going to naturally come up in conversation, you know, is this normal? In general, September, again, is the most probable month for rapid intensification in the North Atlantic. So on the surface, it's not necessarily too rare. But then you get the context of the last 40 years or so. And the research that we've been focusing on, a combination of people at Princeton University, GFDL, Geophysical Fluids Dynamics Laboratory in, in Princeton as well, as well as uh, the uh, University of Reading in England. We're just finished getting a paper accepted now 
uh, at Nature Communications. So hopefully that'll come out soon. We were looking at the last 40 years for a data set called Ivy Tracks, which is your traditional best track data set. And on that alone is an interesting trend. It shows basically that North Atlantic hurricanes are becoming more and more likely to rapidly intensify globally as well. But then it's actually when you peel the onion back and look at all the different other pieces of the puzzle of that paper in science, which really makes it interesting because with Ivy tracks, and this is a uh, issue with all climate change data sets, is you have to be cognizant of temporal and spatial heterogeneities. And what I mean by that is with time, observational tools have changed. And depending on the basin we're in, for example, the West Pacific, the Indian Basin compared to the North Atlantic, we have different levels of tools. So that can introduce data artifacts which are outside side of trends and not necessarily tell you about the climate. Now, with that in the back of our heads, we go ahead and we working with a, a fellow weather geek, Jim Cosen, he was on your on your show. Um, we use a data set which has the same uh, level of resolution and the same approach with time called ADT HERSAT using the advanced Dvorak technique. There's a lot of jargon here, but the, the take home with that is that with time, it's observational capabilities don't change and with basin, they don't change. So we see that same, maybe not as extreme, but same upward trend in rapid intensification globally and in the Atlantic. And that starts to bring us some confidence in these results, right? And so on average, we're seeing more and more storms. Um, I, should see, I should say the proportion of storms rapidly intensify more. And when you have that agreement between multiple data sets, uh, especially with sign and sometimes with magnitude in North Atlantic, we have it with magnitude as well. It starts to bring more confidence in the result. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad free top podcasts included with your prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash adfreenewspodcasts. That's amazon.com slash adfreenewspodcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Kieran Bhatia uh, of Guy Carpenter Reinsurance Company. We're talking about rapid intensification of hurricanes, climate impacts, climate change impacts on hurricanes. And I want to mention, because you heard uh, Kieran talk about Dr. Jim Kosin, and you also heard him mention the Dvorak technique. Those are both two topics that we've recently explored on the podcast. We had Jim on, and we also had an episode on the Dvorak technique. So if you need a little background 101, uh, search the Weather Geeks archives for uh, those episodes. But I think one important point you heard is that Climate scientists like the two of us understand the naturally varying climate system and understand the natural and seasonal cycle of hurricanes and certain times of the year and certain months, certain things do happen. 
But when, within the broader context, something that I often say is it's not an either or proposition, it's an and proposition. So we have naturally varying climate and uh, evidence of uh, uh, anthropogenic changes on top. So with Hurricane Ian, for example, Ian was a fairly large storm in terms of its footprint. It was a category four st storm in terms of its intensity. And when we talk about climate change impacts, people just automatically lump everything together. Oh, we're going to have more hurricanes and they're going to be strong stronger and bigger because of climate change. But it, it's a bit more nuanced than that in terms of frequency, intensity, and size. Talk, talk to us about that. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think that one of these classic uh, lumping together is maybe we don't know as well what the frequency of storms is going to be in the future. That automatically means we don't know about intensity. And I think that's something that is not necessarily true. It's uh, There's different governing factors for the formation or genesis of storms, and then the actual intensity or intensification of storms. So I think it's really important to separate those two things there. We see more and more with, with recent research is that there is a signal in the proportion of category four and five storms, and maybe not in more, not as robust of a signal in the frequency of storms, and so we see a lot of driving influences, especially in the thermodynamic section of, of the science, right? We see things like the ocean temperatures, we have the atmospheric moisture being more conducive, and all those together really are starting to lead to this more robust signal in the category four and five storms becoming more and more likely. One of the things in this National Academies report that we published in 2016 on attribution, we used this three legs of a stool approach in attributing extreme weather to climate change. And they were our physical understanding, the data record length, and the ability of the models to reproduce the event. Those were the three legs of the stool that we then assessed our ability to attribute. Hurricanes, we seem to have a physical, strong physical understanding of what should happen as our climate system warms, as the ocean and the ocean heat content increase. So I think we have a really strong physical understanding intuitively, uh, but as you alluded to, the data record is uh, less uh, of, it's more truncated than perhaps some other data sets, but we, it's, it, it's enough, though. I believe it's enough to, to say some things. Uh, and we are just now emerging into an era where our climate models can produce cyclones, these vor vortex systems that we call hurricanes. So what do you see as the biggest challenges and opportunities going forward in our ability to attribute hurricanes to climate change or hurricane yes. activity, frequent and current hurricane activity? Yeah, so you're, you're spot on in the, the models evolving and becoming more and more successful at, at, at capturing tropical cyclones. I think the issue, and specifically for the topic of rapid intensification and the strongest storms, right, in the regional models and, 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 and observations and physical understanding, we, we know why category four and five storms are connected to more conducive thermodynamic environments. But the issue is in our climate models, when we're looking out into the future, right now, most models cannot capture the strongest storms. And so that always gives us pause because of the fact that when you look into the future and you want to see, okay, with additional anthropogenic greenhouse gas warming, what does a storm intensification and, and cat four and five look like? You can't really get those, that part of the, the spectrum. 
So I think with time, as our resolution of our models get better and better, that is going to give us an opportunity to get more insight on how the strongest storms are going to be affected. And those are really the storms that are, you know, there, there's a nonlinear relationship between damage and wind speed. So those stronger storms are really causing a lot of the damage. So I think that's a really important step that that I'm looking forward to as the science evolves. Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, absolutely. I, I, I think you nailed it uh, in, in terms of your discussion. The question that really I've, I've wanted to ask you since I found out we were going to be able to get you on the on the podcast. We talk about you just talked about wind and how it scales essentially logarithmically. It's not it's not that a category two is a little bit worse than a category one. It's uh, multiple times worse as we go up that scale. And I think that's actually a communications challenge that many in the public don't understand. Um, the other thing I, I, I often see is that, and there's been quite a bit of discussion about this, is whether our, our, our warning metrics properly warn people. Do people understand the cone? Do people understand that the water hazard is, uh, whether that be surge or flooding, is uh, what kills most people in these types of storms? So my question for you, Kieran, is do you feel that there is the need for a new type of metric, or what do you feel is the best way to characterize uh, the intensity and changes in hurricanes as we are in the midst of this climate changed crisis? Yeah, that's a crucial question. I think that I'll start by saying that during my, my PhD at University of Miami, I interacted a lot and, and collaborated with National Hurricane Center on a forecast product for intensity forecast. So this nuance of the physical science telling us one thing, but the social science and connecting the two requiring something else is, is cannot be understated. So yes, as far as a upgrade to our um, understanding of the severity of a storm, not just revolving around wind, I think it's crucial. I think that there is a, the, we know that storm surge is kind of the leading death causer and with Hurricane Ian, the leading damage causer with, with storms, we know that rainfall is becoming more and more of an issue with climate change. There needs to be a way to, especially for uh, our average citizen, understand that when a storm, maybe for example, is a category one, but it's a larger storm and it has a higher chance of extreme rainfall and storm surge, we need to do better as an industry in communicating that this could also have impacts that are similar to a category four storm in some regards, right? You know, so I, I do think that there is a tradition around wind and being the big driver and how we communicate how bad a storm is gonna be. But we as an industry and we as, as a scientific community need to work to continue to come up with ways to have a more all-encompassing capturing of risk that, that really reflects the storm potential. Um, now, as far as the question with climate change, whether it means you know increasing the, the category system or, or what, what's required if, if we do have more damaging storms, I think that, that is, that's a challenge that will come more and more in focus as storms increase in losses and, 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 and severity. Uh, the near-term solution of increasing the wind scale, I don't think is going to be sufficient because of the fact that with a higher wind, if it does occur with a storm, 
there's also going to be a higher rainfalls and higher surge amounts that we also need to capture as well. So I think I think there the, I don't have an easy answer for this, but I do think it's one of those things that I, I, I would say our first goal should be rather than extending the scale, providing more insight into the all the sub perils that come with a tropical cyclone, not just wind, so that we can fully capture how each channel or pathway that storms cause damage. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm talking with Dr. Kieran Bhatia from Guy Carpenter. And, you know, it's, it's an important topic. I mean, I, I just, I'm just all over the place in my thoughts on Hurricane Ian recently and the broader climate change conversation, even as we're recording this. Uh, there are two trop named tropical storms in the, it's early November. That's not unusual because hurricane season certainly goes through uh, November, but it certainly raises the question about the season and the extension of the hurricane season. Uh, season uh, hurricanes and tropical storms happening outside of the quote-unquote hurricane season and so forth but it, what what are you you're in this world from a, as a scientist but also in the reinsurance world what do you think are the biggest misperceptions about climate change in general or as it relates to hurricanes yeah so you hit on one of them I'll, I'll do two misconceptions that I've noticed more and more is that the lumping together the blanket statements hurricanes and climate change in general, it matters by region, it matters by peril, it matters by sub-peril. So I would say that just because one area and one potential peril is not affected by climate change doesn't mean all of them are. So let's just be very specific when we talk about climate change, both in the media and as scientists communicating to the media. I think that's really, really important. Now, something that's a little bit more nuanced is this topic of how does climate change affect us through damage? A lot of times people look at the physical hazard and they'll say, okay, we're, we're warming at you know, one degree every 30 years, 40 years or, or less. And they'll say, oh, that sounds nice. I mean, I'm in a cold location. That, that sounds like a great upgrade to my winter. Um, the issue is that, first of all, the temperature has knock-on effects to other perils. And then the second issue is that actually these slow, seemingly innocuous changes to the climate, when it is overlaid on top of an extreme event, it can go from a slow change in loss to a step change in loss. So a great example is with, with Hurricane Ian in its third landfall in, in South Carolina, there is... Uh, the area of Myrtle, near Myrtle Beach that, you know, got a very high storm surge, I believe it was above six feet. And that area actually, if, her, if the sea level rise that occurred in that area over the last 60 or 70 years, about a foot of sea level rise had not happened, that same storm surge would have gone from a major flood stage to a moderate flood stage. And that's a very quick uptick that you're talking about certain buildings in certain locations going from maybe one foot 
or two feet to three feet or four feet of water with waves, these are nonlinear changes to damage. And a great example is in New York. I, I love the example with the New York City subway. There's a great uh, plot by Bob Henson, which looks at the last 70 years of, of events that have affected New York City as far as high water events. And there's one that actually flooded the subway uh, in, this, in this image that he shows, and that's Hurricane Sandy. But there's about three or four that missed by a foot or two from flooding the subway. And we're talking about a foot of sea level rise that's basically occurred for New York City over the last 100 years. Next 30 years, we're expecting another foot. So those same 70 years of events, let's assume nothing changes. You're going from one event flooding the subway to maybe three or four, right? All else being equal. And that's a step change in losses, right? We, we saw in New York, when the subway floods, we're talking about not millions, we're talking about billions of dollars of damages. And there's obviously other associated losses that occur outside of the subway flooding, but there's a lot of these non-linearities in the built environment where it's once you have water overtopping or once you have a certain amount of rain or storm surge, you're going from almost no impacts to significant impacts. So I think that's another misconception is that these slow changes mean slow upticks and losses, but it actually could happen all at once. You know, you raised a very important point, and it's one that's baffled me for a long time. I mean, even if you take all of the intensity and frequency discussion out of the equation, one thing that's pretty firm in the climate change literature is that sea level is rising and has risen, and it's going to continue to rise. So even if you just have that on the table and look at what you just said, you take a hurricane that happened in 1900 and one that happened in 2022, the sea level and surge potential is very different. And I just, I just have been baffled at how people miss that. That's a, a significant impact given the percentage of people that live within 40 miles of the coast. Uh, and we know that from NOAA and other data. So that alone is problematic, not to mention the other things that we've talked about in terms of intensity changes and rapid intensification. You know, you and I kind of got into a discussion a little bit on Twitter about the slowing down of storms that Jim Coaston and some of his colleagues have published on. And you were saying that there's, so this, to just give the listeners some context there, Jim Coaston, who, who we've had on Weather Geeks, a very respected scientist, he and colleagues have published work that suggests that storms may be slowing down near landfall in North America. So like Harvey or Dorian did, to some degree, Ian also slowed uh, some. Uh, but you were saying that the, there may be some sort of inconclusiveness on that right now. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so I, again, I think the important thing is that that signal that we're talking about, a slowing of storms, there, again, it's very specific to the region, right? It's, uh, it's very important that you talk about what region you've seen the more robust signals. Um, I think there's been some really interesting back and forth in the scientific literature about well, what are the observational constraints that are potentially causing or showing a signal? And what are the, where, where do we have more reliable data? And so I think that discussion of, okay, well, we have reliable data here and that therefore maybe these results are, are more meaningful than others. I think the second thing is, with climate models, right? We don't always see the climate models showing that same slowing. So when we talk about multiple lines of evidence, we wanna see it in observations in a reliable observational data set. We wanna see it in physical understanding. And then we wanna see it also being resolved by models. So 
the multiple lines of evidence piece is building, but it's not fully there. So that's why I think it's an active area of research. It's really interesting. I do think that from a physical understanding piece, this potential loss of a temperature gradient or a reduction of the temperature gradient from the poles to the equator, causing a slowing of the circulation, there's definitely something to that. And that could potentially cause on average, a, you know, a slowing of the circulation. I think for me, the issue with, with storms is that so often they're affected by things at the weather time scale. So seeing a robust change in the circulation during the hurricane season and having that manifest in individual storms is, I feel like a slightly more, um, there's slightly more steps to get there. And as a result, that's why I would like to see more and more results on this topic and more and more explorations with climate models to kind of fully capture the mechanisms that would be reducing storm motion over land. You know, I really have enjoyed this conversation because I, I think, uh, Dr. Bhatia, this discussion today for you as listeners, I hope it resonates with the nuance of the discussion. Very nuanced discussion today with some very important science, but yet nothing that he has said today refutes the fact that climate change is happening, that humans are contributing, and that hurricanes are likely responding in some way to it, or tropical cyclones, the broader category. Uh, it's just important that we all, as the public scientists, the media, uh, understand these nuances as, as opposed to painting with a broad uh, stroke. And I think that's one of the things that I, I, I suspected we'd, we'd get from you in this podcast. And I think it's been very valuable. Where, where can people find out more about you? Can people follow you on social media, your company, so forth? Yeah, for sure. So you can definitely Google Guy Carpenter and understand kind of more about what the company does and our North American Peril Advisory and what we do in the company. Um, as far as following me on Twitter, you'll see a lot of uh, scientific musings that Marshall's already seen. Um, but you also you can also look me up at LinkedIn and connect if you have any questions about any of the research that I do, any of the things I've talked to you about today, and, and learning more about what I do at Guy Carpenter. I'd be more than happy to engage. And it, it's been really great. Before I get out of here, though, I can't get out of here without our Geek of the Week. We have our Geek of the Week feature back. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Will Singley. Will is a high school earth science teacher in North Carolina and is passionate about the processes that help create weather. His favorite type of weather is thunderstorms, and his most memorable weather event was the 16-inch snowfall in Western Carolina back in 2018, which is actually pretty impressive for that part of the country. So, hey, Will, thank you for what you do on behalf of our students. I know the value of teachers. You heard uh, Kieran and I both talk about the influences of K-12 education on our own career. So thank you for what you do. And Kieran, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thanks again. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time.